Hello, and welcome back to the Chem Talk podcast. On today's episode, we will interview Dr. Scott Cushing, Assistant Professor of Chemistry at Caltech. Dr. Cushing earned his PhD in physics at the University of West Virginia and currently does research involving processing light and spectroscopy. We hope you enjoy today's podcast and be sure to visit our website at chemistrytalk.org. Hi, Dr. Cushing. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. My name is Roxanne. I'm a second year college student uh, studying human health and disease, and I'm here with Claris. Hi, my name is Claris. I'm an incoming high school senior. I'm Scott Cushing. I'm an assistant professor at um, Caltech, and I have backgrounds ranging from chemistry to material science to physics. Great. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today. We're really excited to learn about what you're working on. Um, Would you mind just giving us a quick introduction into your educational background and how you got where you are today? Uh, Yeah. So, you know, I grew up in West Virginia, um, honestly, mainly working on cars, fixing houses, just, you know, doing mechanical oriented things um, for fun. I I didn't have much uh, thought and my parents really didn't have much career background on what it would be to get a PhD or be a professor. So I ended up going to college um, in Western University and originally had designs to most likely going to, you know, engineering, some form of that. But then, you know, when we were doing tours on our first few weeks, I saw lasers. I don't know. I was just like, this is everything for me. Like, I have to work with lasers. I want to work with lasers. So that started a, a career and tenure. You know, I did my undergraduate and graduate work at Western University um, between two different professors. And I started off with, you know, kind of small optics and a little bit of nanofabrication, you know, making things in a clean room. But then I slowly moved more and more into what is my current field, and that's ultra-fast instrumentation building. So before we start talking about the details of your research, what are a few really important fundamental concepts that you think people need to understand. I work within physical chemistry, which is, you know, an interesting mix of, I don't know about every field out there. It's a kind of choose your own adventure type of thing. But like I said, you know, I specifically work on trying to build brand new scientific instrumentation. And most of these are based around the concept of what we call an ultra fast laser. This is, um, I think many people are familiar with a laser. It's a type of basically, you know, light source that emits very strong um, photons, um, beams of photons. But we use a specific type of this, uh, a laser that's been designed to be able to have very short pulses on the order of 30 or so or hundreds of femtoseconds. And, you know, femtoseconds, that's a millionth of a billionth of a second. And you may think, okay, you know, not much goes on on that time scale. But in fact, you know, most everything, you know, that absorbs light emits like, you know, the screen we're using to see each other, solar cells, etc. These all start and initiate as well as a lot of chemical reactions on these femtosecond timescales. And what happens on these very short timescales can actually end up dominating, you know, the entirety of processes all the way up to things that take seconds to complete. So, you know, the main kind of concept of my field is taking these lasers, taking this um, giant technological advantage and then using them to create new and different types of measurements to try to, you know, achieve and understand everything. Like I said, you know, from biology to chemistry to, you know, material science, how all these different things intertwine on these very short timescales. Yeah. And that's a wide range too, going from biology to chemistry and material sciences. So could you give a few examples as to what you could specifically be improving with what you're doing with the lasers? 
Yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, on a practical level, you know, I think um, some things that, you know, are very, very practical will go from practical kind of more fundamental to where we're working in. But, you know, on the practical level, it's the basis for a lot of current biological and biochemistry imaging. You know, the beautiful pictures you see of, you know, neuron maps of a brain, these three-dimensional images, those are actually enabled by ultra-fast lasers. Now, you know, they, they aren't measuring on those timescales, but we need these intense lasers in order to drive what we call multi-photon processes that allows basically you know view these fluorescence images and create these beautiful maps you know that's on the very big scale you know more basically lasers probably most people are familiar originally from you know getting things etched you know etching in a metal you know getting your name on your ipod or whatever you want to say mm -hmm. but you know on the level we're working at you know we're looking at really you know taking these instruments you know those are some established examples and then trying to expand them into you know new scientific areas so you know some of the work we do you know it ranges from basically trying to make a uh, tabletop um, x-ray machines. In other words, you know, at a doctor, you get x-rays, you know, we're familiar with that, but there's also large national facilities called synchrotrons and free electron lasers. And these are made to create a wide range of energies that, you know, are used to characterize bonds, different elements, different interactions. And so, you know, we're trying to convert a laser into that, you know, we're trying to convert a laser into a source for an ultra fast electron microscope. We're trying to convert a laser into looking now you know very fundamental quantum mechanics and entanglement so you know you can kind of go with this type of science this type of field of what most people would call spectroscopy from you know very fundamental okay let's measure two bonds let's measure how things react all the way up to the really insanely practical industrial manufacturing and you know medical imaging type fields okay and when it comes to spectroscopy could you define what that is and how it is different from spectrometry? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So, so they're actually the same thing. Okay. Um, so you'll, you'll find a few different words for... Um, I think that people use to describe measurements, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think one of the distinctions, you know, in general, you know, if you're no matter what type of chemistry you do, you measure things, right. You know, if you're making synthetic products, that's, you're going to do NMR, you're going to do, you know, FDR, different processes to understand what you have present, but, you know, um, physical chemists really specialize, I guess I'm like trying to create those spectrometers in the first place. They're trying to make more advanced versions of those in the first place. Just to backtrack a little bit. So, when it comes to light, it's not like, you know, we're familiar with visible light usually in our general lives, but really there's a huge electromagnetic spectrum ranging from like really, really small to really big and differences in wavelength and all that. So what, what are you using out of that spectrum and why is it important that you're using it? Yeah, yeah. So it's a really good, um, you know, question, a little bit of segue of what I was talking about before, you know, like my lab in particular, we work on taking, you know, visible light. Most lasers are actually in the visible and converting that into this much broader range of basically electromagnetic radiation. So, you know, on like one end of what we call the high energy or very small wavelength range, we have x-rays. Mm -hmm. And like I said, you know, a lot of people are familiar with these, maybe if they've done a little bit of chemistry in the lab of doing, you know, x-ray to fraction or these types of techniques. But like I was saying, we take, we make ultra fast versions of these to look at things like, you know, chemical bonds or, you know, looking at, you know, the different atomic centers of a solid and how that comes into play. 
we then also start to go into the other end of the spectrum what we would start to call the 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 terahertz or the long wavelength range almost all the way up to kind of the microwave range um and again you know the key idea here is we're trying to make these on these short time scales you know we have sources you know we have microwaves microwaves have been around forever but how quickly can we make these processes occur because just as you know the very small is good for looking at say certain bonds the very long is equally informative but it's also good for looking at things like electrons moving in something or you know different processes that you know the visible light you know visible light great we can photo excite something we can create a tv screen you know we can see each other but so much of the rest of the world doesn't work on optics right you know most of the electronics in a computer you know and most chemical reactions are thermally or you know electrically activated and you know none of these things work by photo excitation so one of the big things we work on is trying to cover this full frequency spectrum because that allows us to look at these full range of processes other than just you know i don't know things that absorb the sun right so if you were to for example wanting to image like you said a bond or neurons can you take us through the process involving how what you bring to the table with that what other researchers provide you yeah, yeah. So, you know, like I said, you know, my lab, we're, we're very hyper focused on the fundamental. So, you know, what we're working on is, you know, like we said, you know, with the x-rays is a good example, you know, x-rays exist, you get an x-ray in a doctor's office, but there's a lot of other scientific uses for x-rays that those machines can't do um and you know traditionally like i said you have to go to a national lab facility something like a synchrotron these are if you're familiar with them sometimes mile long facilities that you know create different forms of x-rays they're big things to deal with however you know they've just been now getting to the point they're kind of battling hand in hand with what we call tabletop sources to try to do these ultra fast type measurements. So, you know, one fun frontier, you know, the kind of we're stepping in right now is what we call like the atto second, which is even quicker than a femtosecond. It's the time scale that if we pretend an electron was a particle orbiting around the nucleus, it's about the time scale for an electron to orbit like that. So, you know, very, very now looking at bonds, you know, not just looking at their formation, but the very fundamental substituents of that bond itself. So what we do, like I that you know is we build up the instrumentation towards that or in the biology case you know like for example we're even though it sounds very odd we're looking at how we can use entanglement to make better biological microscopes and so we handle kind of that aspect then we collaborate on when we're actually doing the measurements so you know and one lab can't do everything right it's uh, better to focus on you know one thing really in depth so you know my lab is my lab is very diverse in terms of backgrounds um very few people have any background with lasers to be honest a biologist inorganic organic chemist you know physicists um everything you could name them basically and you know the people we collaborate is just as broad you know i work with bio with biologists biochemists i work with people who make batteries who make solar cells and on the list goes so you know we we kind of one of the roles of a spectroscopist is you know one it's looking for okay you know what are fundamental new advances in science that we could try to make new instruments out of to measure new things but the other role a lot of the time is you know people coming to you from separate fields and them saying like okay you know like this problem has puzzled everyone for five or 10 years and we can't figure out how we can't get to the bottom of it with what's you know available in our lab right now can you create something new to actually be able to understand this okay interesting and i want to just circle back to a word you brought up earlier which is entanglement 
Can you expand on that? Yeah. So this is a, this is a fun one. Um, and I'll, I'll do a brief one. Um, if, if you're ever interested or if anyone is interested listening on my home website, I gave a, about an hour public lecture on this, um, which is probably how long it fully takes, but briefly, you know, the idea of entanglement, is a really, really weird one. We got to go into quantum mechanics, probably all the way almost to graduate quantum mechanics, but at its basis, we have the ability to take one, one photon, one piece of light and split it in half into two other photons. Mm -hmm. And if we do this correctly, we can make it so that these two and photons, we have no idea which one is which. And what I mean by that is, you know, we of course know that we have two photons, but until we measure one of them, we don't know the properties of the other. So let's say, you know, kind of an easier example. Let's keep going with the thought experiment. Let's say we have one photon and it's coming in and let's say its polarization is like vertical going across the screen. And now we split it into one that has goes up and one that goes this way. Mm-hmm. So we could take these. We don't know which one's up, which one's is down or parallel, whatever you want to say until we measure it. And, you know, the kind of the basic thought experiment of this is okay. We can actually keep one of these photons and let's say we send the other one to the moon. And in fact, I think, sorry, I think China's done it to a satellite. People have gone to satellites. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, theoretically, we could send this all the way across the galaxy. And mm-hmm. as soon as I measured my part, we would instantaneously know what the other photon is. So this is why it's referred to as entanglement. It's a, there's a famous quote from Einstein calling it spooky action at a distance because it seems like it's physically impossible. And, you know, at the end of the day, just to clarify, you know, it doesn't break any laws of science. It's just because of the fact that, you know, in order for you to make sure your result is right, you would definitely have to call someone on Mars and say like, wait, did you measure that? So it has some weird properties, but you know, this kind of idea is the basis of what we now call, you know, the second quantum revolution or quantum information, quantum computing, some of these buzzwords you may be familiar with, you know, in quantum information, you can think we do lots of patterns of ups and downs. We could communicate a code to each other with quantum computing. The idea is, okay, let's say we have a lot of these different things all entangled. If we interact with one, all the rest interact simultaneously. So you can do faster computing now in spectroscopy how we use this is a little bit differently and we're basically are taking advantage of you know when we measure something it has no idea which photon is which itself you know if this interacts with an atom the atom isn't a measurement device it doesn't say like oh, okay i'm only going to me- interfere with this photon mm-hmm. so we can start doing things that we used to do with ultra fast lasers but because of this weird paradigm, we can now start doing it basically using the equivalent of a laser pointer. So, you know, some of the experiments right now, we're going from using a half a million dollar laser to, a you know, we use a fancy laser pointer, a thousand dollar laser. One of my students right now is even trying to do, you know, a $20 eBay laser and saying, OK, can we replicate some of these really fancy processes? But can we now do it on a not only a more affordable time scale, but in doing slopes, can we also discover new science? You know, how are molecules entangled when they have a reaction? These kind of fundamental questions. So, yeah, so it's a it's a hard one to answer quickly but it's a fascinating concept and that's one of those cases where i was telling you where we have no idea necessarily what we're trying to measure it's just completely open-ended you know it's like okay first let's try to work on making good entangled photons but once we have them like well we just need to start measuring things because no one theory or experiment really has an idea on the full grasp of what we can actually do with this new form of light Right. And just for example, do you have any ideas of what you could measure with that or 
Yeah, yeah. So you know the on the uh, on the very more applied end, you can use them to get. Uh, the, the, there's some interesting examples. You know, one of them. If we take, let's go back to that concept of you know we have one photon, we send the other to Mars. We measure this one, you know this one. So you can do some things called ghost imaging, where, for example, I can measure an image of something using photons that never see the image. So I can measure off using that second set of photons, whatever these first ones interact with. So you can do this with patterns and, you know, spatial images. You can also use it doing different wavelengths. You know, one of the extremes right now is I can couple a visible and an X-ray photon and measure what the X-ray photon does using the visible light photon, which just seems insane. You know, the, the energy and wavelength separation there is like three orders of magnitude, if not more. So that's one example. You know, another example we're working a lot on is those fancy what we call multi-photon biological imaging methods that people are using to create these beautiful 3d brain structures we can theoretically now do this now, right now one of the issues is you know obviously if you're shooting a laser at a brain it's not the best mix in life right you know <laughs> eventually things kind of go bad for the brain so one of the examples is you know using these entangled photons we can start to play tricks where we no longer need these really fast intense beams you know we can just use one part so that's kind of like a very applied, you know, if you're getting a, a kind of a theme here with, you know, a lot of spectroscopy, there's always an applied and a fundamental. And, you know, the fundamental part, though, is we're trying to explore questions that are like, I know questions, for example, you know, do when you have, say, a molecular reaction or when you're dealing with a solid with a lot of electrons that are all correlated, are these fundamentally in quantum states that are superpositions? Are they entangled? Can we enforce entanglement between two systems using an entangled photon? And these have um, very fundamental impacts, not only in our understanding of molecules and materials, but also in seeing, okay, where does chemistry play a role in quantum computing and quantum information, you know, in these vastly growing fields, you know, do we play a role? We have things called molecular qubits and these types of things, you know, or is this more of a solid state thing? So those are some of the, the, the wide variety of things that we're looking into. But like I said, you know, first it all came down to it. it took us years to start doing this well of okay how do we even create entangled photons in the first place yeah they're good questions and i have one more question for you before i pass it off to claris which is when it comes to your background in physics and what you're doing now how do you think it's helped you or changed the way you see the research you're doing now or has it had any impact yeah, totally. So, you know, like I said, um, I, I basically now done background or been in departments of chemistry, material science and physics, and each one was unique in its own way. Um, I started in my undergraduate to get a dual degree in chemistry and physics, but to be honest, I cannot do organic chemistry. So I gave up on my chemistry degree, <laughs> did everything else, but it's just, I, I do not have, that's, I guess that's why I build instruments. I cannot synthesize things that do not have the hands for it, but you know, everything gave me a little bit of background. I Please try to, you know, encourage my students to take some classes from all around. You know, you want to do double degrees, dual majors, you know, et cetera. Um, and you could even ask, you know, like, you know, how much impact does that have afterwards? Um, you know, but it's good to take the different courses because, you know, say you're taking physics, you're going to learn a lot about how math 
describes the world and how to use math. When you take chemistry, you learn much more about fundamental. Okay. Why do bonds exist? Why do materials even look the way they do? You know, why do different processes well work in the world? And then sometimes when you do material science, it's like a synthesis of these of taking, okay, we have some of this physics. We have some of this chemistry. How do we now start using this to engineer new materials and new devices and things like that? So I think they all, you know, they all have very valuable, you know, insights, but like I said, you know, a lot of the, some of my students in the labs, you know, they've done biology and that's their full background. And, you know, when you get to the graduate school level, you know, uh, undergrad research, graduate research, there's a lot of flexibility there. A lot of us, you know, you'll hear a lot of professors say we care more about enthusiasm than background, you know, because, you know, for example, PhD's a long process, you know, if you got to like what you're doing. So, you, yeah, I don't know. My encouragement to people is to explore a lot. You know, if you get a really good undergraduate problem and it's, pump, and it's pumping, do it, you know, get your papers, you know, build up your resume if you want to go to grad school or whatever. But, you know, if, if you find one thing, like this is a lot of fun don't be afraid to try something new and you know during grad school you know make sure to take advantage of rotations try even if you know the lab you're going to i always tell people to just try a lab you know nothing about because you never know you may have a change of heart and you know find something new in a different discipline that intrigues you i think that's really really great advice and uh i'll pass it off to claire's because i think she has some questions for you yeah so um i know you're building spectroscopy instruments can you talk a little bit more about what these do how they work and the difference between the instruments you build and currently existing spectroscopy techniques. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, these these instrumentation, I wish I had pictures to show here. Um, they they vastly vary in scale and complexity. Our transient X-ray one, for example, is probably our most complex. It takes up an entire room. It looks like a Frankenstein experiment. It's it's the one, I won't lie, it's the one when I'm doing like tours for high school and like middle school kids, I take them to because it, it just looks like science. You know, there's wires everywhere. In order to work on that, you have to eventually learn plumbing, electricity, vacuum, mechanical stuff, computer programming, automation, lasers, everything in the world you could think of. And these are a lot of the skills that, you know, people are spectral they pick up. Um, the other part is, you know, spectroscopists also tend to learn a lot of theory because we can't understand what we're measuring if you're trying to measure something brand new without at least having an inkling of what it is you could end up measuring. So, you know, what I do that's different, you know, so to answer your first question, you know, what goes in these, what builds them up? It's uh, it is a mechanical problem, mirrors, optics, you know, like I said, plumbing, vacuum, there's so many different come vacuum, you know, all these different components you have to combine together. So, you know, if you're, for example, getting a PhD in my group or you're doing undergraduate research with my group, that's kind of what you do. You build an instrument and that takes a year to three years to build something brand new. I mean, you know, there's a lot of intermediate steps, but until that thing is all together and you're, you know, publishing papers, like it can be a little while just because, you know, you're trying to create someone no one else has. So that's a lot of fun to do. Um, and then, so, you know, that's, that's kind of it, you know, and what different differentiates my research, I guess, from other labs, even those who are spectroscopists, is our kind of focus on these really weird forms of light. You know, ultra-fast x-rays, entangled photons, ultra-fast electrons. I, uh, I don't know. I, 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 like, I like really pushing these new boundaries and then applying them to what I would call messy problems, as in we don't do a lot of, you know, small molecule or gas phase chemistry. I like to try to tackle, I don't know, messy things. You know, we work a lot with people who do solar energy, photochemistry, solar fuels, a lot of these things are 
super popular, but I, I don't want to take a pristine surface. I want to take that. I want to take, you know, their photo electrode right out of their chemical reaction, put it in my system and measure it immediately. So those are kind of two things that I do there that are different from a lot of other labs. That's, that's cool. So I guess, what are you currently working on to make these like spectroscopy, like techniques and measurements better than other labs? Yeah, so you know, I, I don't want to say we're doing anything better than another lab, but I think different is a is a be, is a better word to use there. Um, and yes, yeah, so, you know, the things we're doing to try to expand beyond is you know, either taking advantage of my multidisciplinary background. So, like I said, really push not only these new forms of light and see just how far we can take lasers, but then to apply these to a broad range of problems. For example, you know, one of, you know, my lab, I kind of call it, we have our like our mature instruments that were originally frontier. And then we also have frontier measurements and, you know, like two frontier measurements I'm working on is one, we're developing a new type of measurement to understand how ions move around in batteries, especially solid state batteries. You know, the things that are critical, you know, they're actually now in cars, they're everywhere, but fundamentally there's still a lot of questions we need to understand to make them better. Um, you know, another thing we're doing, which is, you know, just completely kind of out there in, in the frontier areas, you know, and Instead of using lasers, well, let's start using electrons to excite things and to probe them on these same ultra-fast timescales and asking, okay, does that give us, you know, new ways to modulate, you know, molecules and materials or, you know, does it give us new insight into what's going on? So, you know, I, it's something we do in our lab that, you know, I think is a little bit different is, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's kind of, I think, two types of, you know, scientists, especially in, no matter what your field is, honestly, there's those, those of us who has the mind who like to really keep drilling down into a problem until like you are the world expert on that. And then there's people like me who kind of, I don't know, I have scientific ADHD, I think sometimes. And, you know, I just, I get, I like to do broad, you know, if I do a project for enough until I understand it, I'm ready for the next one. So, you know, we never get as detailed as the other scientists, but, in, but we focus more on trying to do brand new things. Yeah. So you talked about different types of light. So how do, how can different pulse frequencies be used to measure different things? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, a couple of the examples I was given there, you know, we have, x-rays which you think of for diffraction but we also use them for more advanced measurements where i know you can think about you know if you look at an x-ray of a bone it's a bone and you see some other stuff but by changing the frequency and the pulses of those x-rays you can say for example see your skin and your veins or your nerves or that and we can do the same thing with molecules and chemistry and you know what goes on within there so with those we're really let's trying to take let's say you know we have a very complex electrochemistry or photoelectrochemistry problem where, you know, we have something that absorbs light, something that helps with chemical stability or something that drives the reaction. We can use the x-rays to dissect that device and understand the role that each different part of it's playing within the reaction. So that's like a use of x-rays. As you get longer in wavelengths, there are molecular vibrations, but we're also using it to try to, you know, basically drive new excitations that, you know, visible light wouldn't do. Some of these times, you know, we're, we're looking at, okay, you know, how do electrons move around, say, you know, in the quantum dots or OLEDs that make up your TV, you know, how's it working within the circuitry? But we're also doing things like, okay, you know, can we use light to really tear and expand and differentiate bonds in ways, again, that aren't photo excited, that are more like, say, the thermal reaction you would do in your beaker in your undergraduate lab. 
So, you know, some of those, those are some of the things that we use these different frequencies to focus on. So I have one last question before I pass it back to Roxanne. Um, how do you overcome the difficulties that come with using these huge, expensive pulse lasers? And how do you work to make them smaller and less expensive? Like, how do you accomplish that? Yeah, yeah. So that's like one of our biggest goals, you know, like one of my dreams in my career. I mean, obviously, every scientist wants a Nobel Prize, but like really like my biggest ambition that I want in my life is, you know, like I want to make the next UV Viz or NMR. I want to make the next instrument that is on every, you know, undergraduate lab and in doctor's offices, you know, across the world. And, you know, that process, how it comes about is you first start with the very fundamental and extremely expensive. You know, you always got to start there. That's my job. I got to find a lot of funding for the lab so we can keep pursuing these ideas. But then we continually keep making them. Once we have like a mature concept that we know it's useful, we keep iterating new and new, new and newer generations to keep shrinking them more and more. For example, I told you right now, our, our tabletop x-ray source, you know, it takes up an entire lab and it's just a hoping mess. But we're now working on a generation two and a generation three and generation three. I mean, generation two got to half an optical table, like one meter instead of 15 meters. And now we're working on one that uh, we're saying, okay, well, how about, you know, we do half a meter and can we do that for only $200,000 this time? So you keep iterating those and the entanglement example, that's one of the reasons I am excited about, even if it's kind of still an unknown and working on concept is a good example of that. Because we're basically trying to take that and say, okay, well, forget the whole fancy pulse laser and everything that comes with it. Can I just use a laser pointer and some complex, but, you know, affordable manipulation and generation of quantum states to just do everything I used to do with the very expensive laser. But now let's spend a thousand dollars and let's say it can fit in your hand or eventually, you know, one day my dream, okay, can this fit, you know, in the back of a cell phone? So those are the types of things that, you know, we're trying to push. So there's always, you know, there's the first like Frankenstein generation. And then after that, it's about pushing new abilities, but also trying to simplify to see, okay, you know, if this, uh, if this um, instrument did garner interest in the community, can we make it affordable? And sometimes the answer is yes. And sometimes it's no, but you know, that's the fun of science. Yeah. Sorry. I had one more follow-up. So what are the specific like examples of improvements that you can make? to make something smaller, to condense it from like 15 meters to one meter. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, for example, with that instrument, it came a lot, you know, the first time you do one of these experiments, you got to kind of be prepared for everything. So you overbuild you because you have no idea how you're going to make it work. And then once you start to get an understanding of the specifications that are necessary, you can start to build down. But, you know, with the x-rays, it's actually fun. You know, the way we do it is we basically take a big laser and blow up atoms and x-rays come out. I don't know. I think it's freaking cool. But, um, you know, the way we do that. And so we learned that. And then we learned, oh, you know, maybe we, we don't need to completely blow up the atoms. Maybe we can just eject electrons off. So let's get to a smaller laser. And we learned, oh, okay, you know, maybe the x-ray optics and the big vacuum beam line, that's a little bit of overkill. How about we do it instead of in three meters? What if we try just like two vac- two vacuum chambers a couple feet apart? And so you that's how you kind of keep building up. But you you got to kind of keep it's a it's a balance of you know one understanding what's actually needed for the measurement, but two understanding where your instrument is really useful. So you know you try to keep removing just you know one meter at a time or you know one plumbing line or one vacuum chamber at a time until you get to smaller and smaller devices. So sometimes it comes through iteration. 
But other times, like with the entangled photons, it just comes out of a new discovery of a completely new form of science. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow, like we can just sidestep all that and try with this instead. What is the time frame on condensing a laser like that? Yeah. So, you know, my general rule of thumb is to build a brand new instrument. It's going to take at least two to three years for a graduate student. Um, and they usually work in teams of two to three. They're rarely just, you know, by themselves banging a hammer against something They you know, they work in teams together. Now, if you want to talk about to go from that instrument into something that could potentially go to market, then you're looking probably more at like 10 years. You know, it's going to take several, several teams of students, a few PhDs to get there. And then if you want to talk about commercialization, well, then you start interfacing with engineers, packaging, electronics people, and then you're looking at at least another five years. So ambitiously 15 years for something fundamental to get out there. But in reality, what's tend to happen historically is, you know, even once the instrument is created, you got to wait for a population base of people, you know, to build up who aren't specialists in your field to use it. So, you know, it, it oftentimes you'll see that, you know, for the first laser, I think oh, I always get this wrong, but sometimes in like the 60s or whatever. Um, but, yeah, we didn't really see lasers being used in things like the 80s or 90s. And it's just because of all those complex, not only my my type of field of trying to make them, make them better, measuring new science. But then it doesn't matter. You know, I can make something today, put it on the market. And if no one knows how to use it, no one's going to buy it. So you kind of have to wait for both those things to build up. Yeah. When I was doing a little research on this, I saw a quote that said lasers are a solution to like a problem that we don't have or something yep. to that. Effect. Yep. Yep. Yeah. When lasers first came out, that's a classic quote, you know, and someone made a laser and it was like, oh, big deal. Like we have light bulbs. Like, Why, why do we need this? But now uh, and again, I'm getting my number wrong, but I think there's something between like 15 and 20 Nobel prizes that, you know, they aren't all based on lasers, but they use lasers to achieve their goal. So, you know, it's one of those things, you know, science, science tends to come in waves. You have someone who initially discovers something, makes it good. Everyone forgets about it for 10 to 20 years. And then someone comes back and all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, like this could be, you could do it. This could be used for this. And then it takes off. And when it comes to that, do you find that finding funding is fairly easy for you in comparison to maybe other scientists? Do you find that as it, as the waves come and go in terms of, how people are using lasers, that it affects how you're able to get funding? Yeah. So, you know, I'd say in today's environment, funding is hard for everyone. Um, unfortunately, you know, there, there just isn't that much to go around at the moment. Um, you know, where mine differs is I, I really pursue you know, programs to support fundamental research, but also a lot of private foundations who, because sometimes they're willing to take a bigger risk. You know, when you want to go out there and say like, I want to measure something, it may or may not work, but like, yes or no is a perfectly good answer. Both of them matter. You know, a lot of times people, if, if you go to different sources, people say, well, like, that if the answer is no, that's useless. Nothing came out of the research, but other people, you know, they understand that, okay, well that no could lead to something more new and important. So, you know, because of the cost and scale of what I do, my funding sources I pursue are definitely different than say, you know, a synthetic um, or a biochemist or something like that. Okay. I see. And currently you, you are a professor as well, right? Uh, yeah. I'm an assistant professor. Yeah. Okay. And what do you find rewarding about that job? Do you enjoy being an assistant professor or are you more focused on your lab? Yeah. So I actually really, really do. I, 
I kind of didn't know I wanted to be one. I really didn't even know what a professor did. I just kind of kept following the track of I got a BS, then I got a PhD, then I did a postdoc, and now I'm a professor. But, you know, in between there, um, I've, I've done some consulting with companies and worked with companies and startups. So I had a taste for a very, very different field. And, you know, I, I debated quite a long time, just like a lot of people do, you know, what route did I want to take? You know, I had jobs lined up on both sides. And I ultimately became a professor because I love mentoring. Like, I am... I'm not good at kind of mentoring anyone, but like undergrad to graduate, like postdoc level, I tried middle school and high school and everything else. It's just, I don't know. That's not my talents. Other people have those talents in their life. Um, but, you know, I really find that aspect rewarding. I also have the type of brain though, that really likes, you know, writing grants, exploring broad ideas, looking for new fields and doing those types of things. You know, to be honest, by the time I was with my postdoc, you know, I didn't want to do anything else in the lab. You know, I still help my students when they need it but i was like no like i just want to write grants i want to manage my group that's what i want to do so you know i commonly tell my students um you know because the landscape has always changed you know out of what you do after bs or a phd you know do you go on to a phd do you go to industry and what goes on you know i often tell them you know for the people who want to be uh uh, professor, you know, it's not an easy job. Um, mm -hmm. And what you need to be a professor isn't just the fact, you know, like, okay, you're the smartest. It's literally a personality trait. Every professor I met, we're, you know, we, we are honestly scaringly similar in terms of, you know, personality, mental health issues, everything else, you know, we're just a personality trait, you know? So, you know, I, most of my students, you know, I, they, I encourage them to find the job that gives them the work-life balance that they want to do their hobbies plus actually being in the lab versus management etc so you know i have i've already had students to go everything from startups to big industry to consulting um to as well as being professors so it's yeah. a choose your own adventure okay and with your the phd students that work in your lab have has there ever been any specific thing that one of them was doing that you thought, oh my gosh, this is the coolest thing that someone's ever thought of to do in this lab? Yeah, I mean, honestly, almost every single one of them. Um, I, I hire students, like I said, not on background, but on enthusiasm and creativity. Mm -hmm. So I love creativity. And, you know, I'll, I'll gently, gently shut down most ideas. But sometimes, you know, when a student says something, you're like, wow. But like, you know, something as professors you learn, you know, when you first start off as an assistant professor, you're, 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 you know, everything, you're the boss, right? Mm -hmm. But now, you know, like, even when it's a new idea, I know more than the student. But then after two years, they know more than you. So you're just there to kind of learn from them and see how you can integrate that into the broader portfolio because, you know, they're hyper-focused on their instrument and they're still learning, you know, management skills and mentoring skills. So, you know, I can see the big picture, but, you know, they're the ones who are actually sitting there, you know, coming up with fun ideas. Like, I love it. Like, I encourage them, you know, every other Friday, you know, to try to take half a day off and I don't know, just read weird, weird crap. Just go read something that's completely irrelevant to you, but you never know, you know, when that idea may come about. Yeah. And my next question was going to be, if you have any advice for students, what is it? But would you have just answered that with take yeah. the day off? Every I, I, th I think I think that would be my my lines of advice. And, you know, I guess my other advice that I give out, you know, I just because of my own past, you know, I I've gone through a lot of mental health issues. And I think a big thing that is gaining recognition in um, academia, but like 
take care of yourself, you know, like work on establishing a work-life balance. I waited way too late until I was a professor to try and, you know, huge mistake, but, you know, figure out that balance, you know, what's my work, what's my outside activities, you know, what's my kind of family, you know, what are, what are those types of things? And they're the same questions. If you ask, oh, what are you going to do for your job? No one can answer, but like, you know, start chugging on it earlier rather than later, you know, to try a therapist, you know, see if maybe that's the type of thing. It doesn't help everyone, but a lot of people, it's an invaluable tool as they go on throughout their career um there's some statistic i think it's like 60 to 80 percent of people in graduate school suffer from clinical mental health issues at some time and so like i don't know like i think it's important most professors now are coming around to the fact that like people who are taken care of well produce better results than people who are just driven into the grave but you also got to take some responsibility and start that on your own so i think that's critical because i think that balance is going to determine you know where you end up in your career as much as you know your scientific interests yeah i think that's such a good piece of advice because i think it's very well known in the academic community that even once you get to having your PhD and having a really good resume, it can be so hard to find positions that will even pay you. I saw um, a post that was saying there was an assistant professor opportunity open and it was unpaid. And you've gone through all of that schooling and all that debt and have worked so hard to not even be able to get a position which is just crushing. That's really hard. Yeah. I mean, the statistics of being a professor these days are quite low. Um, I I think the good thing though, is, you know, because of that and recognition, you know, especially, you know, your earlier stage or your older stage, more adaptable professors, you know, we're incorporating things now, like in our PhDs, like in the last year, my students do an internship for several months, you know, like, so that we can start building up, you know, PhDs that are compatible with, and competitive with the rest of the world outside of just this idea of the academic track as you a professor, if you aren't a professor, sorry, like it's just, it's, it's, it's an unsustainable and honestly just a, a dumb model. You know, there's so many fun careers in this world. There's so many balances you can get. Like, yeah, there's a lot more to it than just trying to be a professor. Yeah. And when you say making the PhDs compatible and sending your students to internships, what, what is it that makes that makes a PhD compatible. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it, it used to be for a lot of the part, you know, everyone, there's enough professorships available that, you know, most people would go on to academia instead of going to industry. But these days it's really starting to flip. And honestly, you know, the flip is, is, I don't know, it's a fun one. For example, I worked in startups for a while. I'm like, startups are fun as all get out, you know, either, you know, it's probably going to fail. It's like doing a high risk scientific project, but like, who cares, you know, churn and burn, let's have some fun. You know, if my, I have a friend and my favorite quote is because he's been in the startup world forever is like, you know, the first startup I was in when it went under, I like panicked. And then the second one, I was like, sweet, I got a free three month vacation. Like, you know, it's the adaptability, you know, another, another one of those things, you know, that you try to train your students towards that I see is, you know, 
uh, because of the academic system, you're very set into like, I have this next goal, this next goal, this next goal. But like, you know, you commit to an undergraduate institution, that's four years. You commit to a PhD, that could be four to six years, you know. But after that, you know, once you go out into, you know, going to do jobs outside academia, like I think the average quotation now is like some people do somewhere between like four to six jobs before they retire. And like, yeah, so, you know, you got to get yourself out of that mindset. Just go try things, you know, have fun. But I think, you know, from an advisor, from the professor level, I mean, one, it's, you know, your job, you know, is always, of course, in some way relegated by what your background field is. But I think some people think their PhD, at least in my fields that I work with, is going to be ultra limiting because they get too narrow in knowledge. But, you know, what you're learning in your PhD, the biggest thing is how to take an arbitrary problem and make some progress towards it. So, like, that is a skill that's invaluable. But at the same time, you know, every job's gotten more competitive now. So to prepare people, that's why we're doing things like internships, because people in industry, you know, they don't necessarily care about how many papers you publish. They're going to go read them. But they want to see that you have the skills that you've shown, you know, you can work in teams. You show you have knowledge of, you know, what generally goes on in the office, et cetera. And that's going what's going to start making you more appealing. Got it. Yeah, so I think, you know, slowly but surely, you know, tech has always done internships and engineering has, but in the sciences, um, I think, you know, internships are slowly starting to gain as much traction as things like RU programs and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really good advice to try new things. Don't limit yourself. Yeah. Even though yeah, always, yeah, go have some fun with it. You know, yeah. <laughs> you don't, don't get stuck in your path. You know, there's a lot to life, you know, explore a few things before you make up your mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Clarice, did you have any last questions? Yeah, I did. So um, you talked a little bit about mental health, funding that like kind of work-life balance um, and also preparing your students for success. How do you foster that kind of environment in the classroom, in the lab? to prepare your students um, and to also help them find that good work-life balance you were talking about. Yeah, totally, totally. You know, so there's a couple scales of that, you know, one in general, um, as being a professor, you know, you gotta be open. And if you can find a professor to work for who is open, it'll make your life much better. You know, like I said, you know, I, I have um, I have a neurological disability, but um, I've also had, you know, extreme mental health issues on the level of, you know, trying to commit suicide. And, you know, even me just saying that to a student automatically communicates that, like, look, you can talk to me <laughs> like I've been through the same things you're going through. And I think that's a hugely important part. You know, as professors, it's something we're still navigating and learning how to do. But like. I don't know. You got to be open about when you're scared about things as a professor, you know, when you feel anxiety, you can't act like everything's perfect. And I think that's one of the biggest steps that needs to be done. Right. Because there's always going to be a power imbalance, whether it's undergrad or grad between us and you. There's just no other way around it. But like if there's that power imbalance, you need to take advantage of that to show that, like, OK, even though I am a professor, like my fears and anxieties have not changed. And, you know, so I think that's one of the most important parts. You know, I've done other things. Something that was very successful on our campus at Caltech is we have um, let's call, we call it Kim Minds, but it's basically a lunch for people who are, you know, struggling with mental health associated with mental health and allies or just people who are having a really crappy week. And we have this, you know, once a month or so, and it's a free lunch. And the idea is, you know, it's not a group therapy session. It's not a seminar session on how to be better at life, but it's just community. We get together, we have lunch and we don't talk about anything like that, but it's just knowing that like, you're not alone. Right. You know, like, 
a science can be very isolating and you can feel like crap, you know, like I'm failing. I'm the only one failing. Everyone else is doing so great at this, but in reality, every other single person's, you know, mirroring your thoughts. So I think that's one thing, but also, you know, really emphasizing the campus leadership and getting it going, you know, that you do need a therapist or two on campus, you know, not that everyone's going to go to them, but at least as a launching pad, because, you know, everyone just needs to try it once. You may try it and you're like, you know, this is in no way for me, but you may also try it and realize, wow, like, you know, even if I don't have mental health issues, like I need this form of, you know, being able to talk someone every couple of weeks and just talk about my life in a way that has zero repercussions as if I was talking to my friends or someone else, you know, I need that freedom. So, you know, I think that's the mental part of it is something that's very important, you know, for the work-life balance, you know, I don't, I really encourage my students to leave campus. Um, I try to, I, I can't enforce these things, right? But when I onboard people, I try to say, you know, okay, like I want you to have at least one hop. Like, and I want that one hobby, if you can make it away from campus, you need to get out and just make friends who aren't here. You need to stay away from that isolationism and also, you know, kind of unfortunate echo tech that can very much happen to all the classic example every year when people go through their PhD qualifiers, everyone gets immense amounts of stress. Even though the fact that, you know, the success rate is 95%, you know, <laughs> but we build up this stress that it's just because, you know, you're only talking to other scientists, et cetera, et cetera. And it goes on, you know, I feel the same way about tenure, you know, I know the probability they tell me I'm doing well, but like, it's still in my mind. I'm like, crap. And me and all my other young professors talk to each other. We're like, we're all going to fail. Like life's over when tenure comes, like who knows what's going to happen. But then I go out and, you know, I hang with my buddies at the beach who I don't even know if they know I'm a professor and like life erases itself, you know, and you get that you get that calm back. So, you know, I think you got to spend some time, you know, whether you like being out in nature, whether you like gaming, you know, no matter what, like kind of your hobbies are, you know, you got to set something up like that where you have a fallback at all times. Um, and, you know, unfortunately the rest of it, it's still an evolving culture in academia, but one of the big changes I've seen is, you know, this generation I love because they're willing to try to enact the changes that they need instead of just kind of, you know, where my generation, we are still bridging the gap between no one talking about it and everyone talking about it. But now, you know, for example, when students I've even seen in, you know, the four years I've been an assistant professor, my first year, you know, everyone was like very nervous and like, okay, like what's your science, et cetera, et cetera, which I kind of got bored with because it's like, you already know my science. We already talked about it, you know, but on those one-on-one meetings now, people ask things, you know, what's your diversity climate? You know, how is the mental health on campus what strategies do you have to make sure you know that i'm there so you know it, it sucks because you never want to tell the person who has at the bottom end of the power imbalance to try to you know empower themselves but having these conversations during visitation weekends or when you first meet a professor you know more and more professors are going to start being open about it but it's a change you know i don't know how many years it'll take but at least things are going more positively i could say than when i was in your all same position yeah i think that's really important as a student myself too thank you so much for talking with us today we really appreciate it yeah yeah thanks y'all for having me this was a blast we look forward to seeing what you do in the future sounds good i'll talk to you all later bye thank you thank you if you enjoyed this podcast episode or simply want to know more about chemistry visit us at chemistrytalk.org and follow us on all social media platforms including instagram twitter and tiktok by searching chemtalk thank you and see you next time